So tonight's lesson is lesson 10. We are looking at Who Confused Christians? Part 2. Last time that we studied, we looked at the first part of this, and we, we studied the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, which lays a great foundation in terms of understanding beasts, which leads us up to Revelation 13, and of course the Bible in the three angels' messages talks about the, the mark of the beast and some of these you know, last day events. We want to better understand those and the foundation that we have laid by studying Daniel chapter 7 is the foundation we need to understand the prophecies such as in Revelation 13 where it describes two beast powers there. In our last lesson we learned that a beast power represents a kingdom as Daniel 17 or Daniel 7:17 7, and verse 23 tells us. So we learned that the Bible defines the symbol of a of a beast as a kingdom. We looked at that last time. And uh, there's obviously a lot more that we could consider about that, but we, we definitely saw those, those items there with the beast. So today in our lesson, we are looking at Revelation 13 in combination with Daniel 7. Mo more specifically, we're looking at the little horn power, which is known as the Antichrist power there in Daniel 7. And we're also looking at how this will correlate with the prophecies of the book of Revelation specifically in chapter 13 and other related prophecies dealing with the Antichrist. So, before we jump into today's lesson on who confused Christians, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this evening and for this, this time to gather once again. We pray that you will guide us by your Holy Spirit and please give us a true understanding of your word. Lord, we ask that we will be transformed by your grace working in our lives and we do pray that you will Clarify to our minds those things which we need to know, those things which you have revealed for our safety, for our protection, so that we would not be deceived and overcome by the enemy. We thank you, Lord, for your help and for your mercies, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So our lesson tonight has a couple thought questions, and they deal somewhat, <clears throat> I think, uh, specifically with the topic we're looking at here which are, number one, have you ever had mixed feelings about something where some things seemed good and other things you weren't quite sure about it, but something seemed off or something seemed wrong? I think we've mostly all been to those kinds of situations where something seemed off. And sometimes we could be in a situation where something might not seem off, but if we start investigating, like digging into the Bible, for example, we might find that maybe not everything is right. So we always have to go back to a standard, an objective standard to check things out and find out the truth. That's very important. And I think we've also found this situation in relationships before, where you knew that something wasn't good, um, perhaps you were in a relationship and knew that something wasn't good, but of course you have these emotional attachments or ties and, and it's like this fight between your brain and your heart. <laughs> perhaps you've been in that situation before. Um, hopefully not, but <laughs> commonly these kinds of things have happened in this world. And so we just have to realize that God is calling us to live by His principles no matter what, because feelings are one thing, 
but biblical principle is the guiding light for our lives. The teachings of Scripture is the guiding light for our lives. It is to transcend all um, feelings or relationships, and certainly you would hope that, you, that our feelings would come into line with God's will, with God's teachings, with God's Word. Um, but just remember that, that feelings can get us into trouble. Look at Eve in the Garden of Eden. She looked at the tree and she thought, well, it seems good to me. It'll make me wise. So somehow she was feeling good about the tree, even though God said, do not eat from the tree. It's a forbidden tree. So the Bible illustrates for us in many ways, in many respects, that we cannot merely be relying on, on feelings and connections and ties like that, but we have to put God as number one in our lives and put God's Word as the guiding rule of our lives. God's Word, God's truth. Jesus says that we must live and worship God by spirit and by truth, or in truth, in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4 describes that. Okay. So, very important to keep that in mind. Now, I mention these things because Jesus tells us that in the last days, matters will be very deceptive. The, the enemy of souls will make things appear as if they're coming from Christ when in fact they're not. Notice here, Matthew 24 and verse 24. The Bible says this, For there shall arise false, what? Prophets. No, Christ. you're guessing. <laughs> false Christs. Good guess, but not the right guess. <laughs> okay, yes. For there shall rise false Christs and false prophets. So she wasn't far off. She was right about that. <laughs> yeah. False Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So does Jesus tell us that great deception will come in the last days? He does. And he says that, that even the very elect could be deceived if possible. Folks coming in the name of Christ, saying they are Christ, or perhaps saying, I'm Christian. Coming in the name of Christ, and yet not of Christ, and yet not following Christ. And false prophets coming in the name of God, coming in the name of righteousness or holiness, and yet they're up to deception and mischief and iniquity, which the Bible defines as lawlessness. Another scripture that's very clear on this is 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. Does anyone have that for us? And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan himself. Thank you. <laughs> Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light of light. That's 2 Corinthians 11, 14. So the devil himself can come as an angel of light. And do you believe the devil's going to come in the last days to try to deceive the world? Yes. Is he going to come and do it in person? I mean, he's always working through these systems in the world. But yeah, he's going to make a powerful appearance somehow in the last days. We'll be looking at some of this more as we continue studying uh, the Word of God in this series. But Essentially, you see here that the devil will come and show himself as an angel of 
light. And the Bible is very clear in that verse because it says, no marvel for Satan himself. That's telling us that he will come himself. Did he come to Eve himself? Yeah, he did. He did not introduce himself as himself. <laughs> he came as a serpent, but he did come as himself and reveal himself. But he, he shows himself even as an angel of light. It will look like he's coming from heaven. It will look like he's talking to you, bringing you a message from heaven above. And yet it's not from heaven above. In that case, will he come in the name of Christ? Will he come in the name of God? Oh yes, very much. These are the deceptions that we are up against. The book of Revelation describes the entire world being deceived by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And the three angels' messages help to clarify for us these dangers. The second angel among the three angels tells us that we need to beware of Babylon, which is fallen. The word Babylon traces back to ancient Babel, which means confusion, as we have talked about in our series so far. And so confusion, the devil is deceiving people. He is causing confusion. And God is saying, look, that is confusion. That is deception. That is from the enemy. And you need to know clearly what the truth is. You need to be able to stand with Jesus and his word and not follow these counterfeits not follow these deceptions. Amen. We have a little amen over there. <laughs> All right. So point three here. Uh, through Satan's deception, what does he mainly try to lead people away from? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a passage in Scripture that speaks about the Antichrist, a man who puts himself up in the place of God, showing himself that he is God in the temple of God. So, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. Who would like to read that for us? The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the word of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Thank you very much. So the coming of the lawless one. This coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Yes, yeah, so a lot of deception, a lot of counterfeiting, and you know, putting in the place of God. And so the Bible tells us here that he comes with lying signs and wonders. Yeah, lying signs and wonders. Now, we also have in this passage, it describes in verse 7 that the mystery of iniquity does already work. That is the mystery of lawlessness. Verse 8 describes, then shall that wicked be revealed. Now, the wicked one there, the modern Bibles say it as lawless one, and that, that is correct. Because the Greek word there is anomos. A, alpha, meaning without, nomos, law. Without law. You'll keep hearing it a lot of times. I want to make sure that we all know that for sure, very clearly. Ah, nomos, without law, the lawless one. Because when you, when you get down to it, the devil is attacking God's law. 
when it came to Adam and Eve, how did he deceive Eve? He got her to break God's law. God said, don't eat from that tree. God commanded them not to eat from that tree. And he said, if you do eat from that tree, you will die. The devil said, oh, no, 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 you won't die. You won't die. You'll be fine. You go ahead and eat it. And so she disbelieved God, disbelieved God's word, and she chose to eat it even knowing what God said. How many today will take the bait of the serpent and eat the forbidden fruit because it appeals to their own senses and they don't want to follow a thus saith the Lord. They don't want to stick to the Bible. You see, the only way to overcome is to stick to God's word like Jesus when he faced the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus went specifically by the word of God and he overcame through the word of God. Today, we need to overcome by the word of God. We need to overcome by the word. This is our only safety. It is through the word of God. So there are other verses that will come up as we study prophecy where we will see how the devil makes this attack against the Lord and his word. Now, uh, another scripture, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verse 7 through 9. Who has that? And then somebody else can read for us Isaiah 8.20. So Mark 7, verses 7 through 9. And somebody else will get Isaiah 8.20, please. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Okay. So you notice that, that they have rejected God's commandments to follow the traditions of men. They have put man's word in place of God's word. Mark 7, 7 clarifies where it says, Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of, of men. Yes, the commandments of men. Jesus says this is vain worship. This is not true worship. It's not biblical worship. And yet they profess to love God. They profess to serve God. They profess to obey God. And yet they weren't obeying God in every respect. Because in some ways they were choosing to exalt the laws of men, the commands of men, over the commandments of God. And this was a dangerous thing. In verse 8 it says, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things you do, and he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Full well. They were rejecting God's commandment. Now, notice verse 13. It says, Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered, and many such like things you do. Is it a dangerous thing to make the word of God of no effect? Yes, it is very dangerous. Jesus himself tells us that that is a dangerous thing to try to make the word of God of no effect. In other words, treating it like a dead letter. Like, you know, the Bible says that, but you know, it doesn't really matter. Whatever I think is good, whatever the majority of people think is good, you know, that's just what we're going to do and God will just accept it. Is that true or not? <laughs> no, according to Jesus, you can't just follow a multitude to do evil. You have to walk the narrow way and follow the Christ of the narrow way 
don't follow the broad way because the Bible says, wide is the gate and broad is the, the way or the road that leads to destruction. And many people go in that way, Jesus tells us. So the devil has many traps out there for believers, many dangerous ways and detours to try to ruin our faith in Christ. And Jesus warns us about that. Now, I think uh, maybe Sister Becky has for us verse uh, 8 of Isaiah. No, chapter 8, sorry. Isaiah 8, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to the word, they have no light of dawn. Thank you. So, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light in them. So the Bible is making it very clear for us that we need to live by God's commandments. Jesus tells us we have to put God's commandments always above men's commandments, and men will try to pervert the law of God and teach things wrong even in the churches. If it happened throughout Israel's history, if it happened in the first century when Jesus was teaching, will it also happen today in these last days when deception is running rampant? The answer, I believe, is an obvious yes. We must go back to the Word of God. In Acts 5.29, the apostles said we ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to obey God rather than man. That's Acts 5.29. Now, what is a symbol of a woman in Bible prophecy? What is a symbol of a woman in Bible prophecy? Ephesians 5.25 tells us there, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So what does a woman symbolize? It's like Christ and the church. Husband and wife, Christ and the church. So we see that a woman is a symbol for a church, and this we will study more in future lessons. We will see how it comes into the story of Revelation and the story of the three angels in Revelation chapter 14, with the fall of Babylon. Because the Bible talks about Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And so we see that this symbol comes in uh, you know, as a very important symbol to understand when we look at Bible prophecy. Now, the scriptures tell us about a system of corruption during the Middle Ages. And Revelation 2 verse 20 describes that system here. Revelation 2 and verse 20, and the Bible says this in verse 20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death. Is the Lord serious about judging iniquity? Yes. God is serious about judging sin. Now, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 discuss the seven churches. The seven churches is a whole study in and of itself. We see an application in the first century, but we also look at the complete picture of the churches and realize that it tells us things throughout the last 2,000 years about the church. 
Today, the message of the seven churches is just as relevant to us as it was 2,000 years ago, isn't it? This message of truth has been relevant to God's church in every age. And it really covers those ages when you, when you look at it, moving us right down to the last century. So the, the message here is for God's people today. And he describes in this message to this church here, to Thyatira, he describes a woman in the church, and her name is Jezebel. Now, if you know biblical history, Jezebel was married to Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, and Jezebel worshipped Baal. And she taught the king to worship Baal. He just kind of went along with whatever she said to do. And she executed the prophets of God. She chased after Elijah, trying to kill him. There were three, year, three and a half years of no rain in those days because of Baal worship in the kingdom. And Elijah had given the prophecy of God and it did not rain. And, and so this woman was killing the prophets of God and chasing after Elijah, the true prophet, the true messenger of the Lord. And so, uh, you know, the Bible is drawing a lot of parallels for us because the book of Revelation is written around AD 90 and we're looking at the church moving forward to the very end of time. We're looking at the church. And so the Bible is drawing from biblical history way before, before the time of Christ, and it's telling us some important things about the last days and important things about the Middle Ages, things that would affect the church. The Bible tells us that this woman Jezebel, she calls herself a prophetess, but is she a true prophet of the Lord? No, she is a false prophet. And it says that she, she teaches and seduces God's servants to commit fornication. That is immorality or unfaithfulness to God. She seduces people. And she says to eat things sacrificed to idols. This is breaking the Ten Commandments here. She's teaching people, calling herself a prophetess of the Lord. No doubt, she's not calling herself a prophetess of the devil. She's calling herself a prophetess of the Lord, and she is seducing God's servants. She is tricking them. She is fooling them, and she is leading them to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And notice that God gave her space to repent. He gave her time to repent. He gave her many opportunities to repent, but did she repent? No, no she did not repent. And so the Lord said, there's only one thing coming for, for her. I will cast her into a bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds and I will kill her children with death. Is God serious about judging this wickedness? Yes. He is. So God doesn't want us to be a part of, of Jezebel's fan club, does he? <laughs> he doesn't want us to be a part of that system or mixed up in that corruption and that idolatry, that commandment breaking, that false teaching, that false prophetic message that Christ has warned us about. God does not want us to be a part of that, and this is why the scriptures warn us so much. Now, the Bible tells us that God has servants who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is in Revelation 14.4, which is the in the verses preceding the three angels' messages, Revelation 14.4, and the Bible describes here God's people who are sealed in the last days. They have the name of the Father in their foreheads. And verse 4 of Revelation 14 says, 
these are they which are, were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. The application here is actually to be understood spiritually speaking. Okay, so not defiled with defiling women. Now, if you look at Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, there's two kinds of women. There's an immoral woman who defiles, and there's a godly woman. Which chapter is that? 31, Proverbs 31, powerful chapter, <laughs> powerful chapter. So Proverbs 31, you have the Proverbs 31 woman. She is a godly woman. The Bible says that her husband has no need to fear disaster <laughs> because her, his heart can safely trust in her because she is faithful to God. So you have a faithful woman who does not defile, but you have immoral women who most definitely defile and will lead you straight to hell. And this immorality goes every kind of way, you know, whether male or female or whatever, this world is so mixed up today, but immorality is immorality no matter how you slice it. So immorality is wrong. There's only those two kinds. Now the Bible says that these people here are not defiled with women. By the way, does God have a true church, a true woman who comes into the wilderness and comes out of the wilderness in the last days. That's Revelation 12. We'll be looking at that prophecy in a future lesson. Very powerful. So, um, there is a woman in Revelation who does not defile. That's the woman of Revelation 12. There is also a woman in Revelation who most definitely defiles. Jezebel's already mentioned, and the great whore or harlot, the mother of harlots even, is mentioned in Revelation 17 as Babylon, and you don't want to follow her. So, we want to stay away from those dangers. Now, the Bible says that these people here in the last days who are sealed with God's seal, it says that they are not defiled with women, for they are virgins, spiritually speaking. That's, that application is spiritually speaking. Verse 4 continues, These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. So, they follow who? Jesus, wherever he goes. So what should be our greatest goal as we study the prophecies and study all these things? Who do we need to learn to follow? Jesus. And do we need to follow him just like 50%, 60%, 70%? I mean, 100%. 100%. Thank you. 100%. Wherever the lamb goes, not just like where we want to go. If he's going there, okay, I want to go with Jesus. And then if he goes somewhere else, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, I don't want to go anymore. You know, that's not the right way. We need to follow Jesus wherever he goes, wherever he leads us. This is the characteristic that we need in our hearts. A full surrender to Jesus. This is what the Bible is teaching us through the three angels' messages, to follow Jesus the Lamb wherever he goes. Don't follow defiling women, corrupted churches, but follow Christ and just follow him. Follow what the Bible says. And that will help us to determine if a woman is faithful or not. How do we, how do we even judge if a church is faithful or not? By its fruit. By its fruit? But, but how do we investigate the fruit? How do we know if it's good fruit or bad fruit? Do we have a standard to check it by? To the law and to the testimony. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, by the word of God. This is, this is the book that, that will help us to discern if there's faithfulness or if there's unfaithfulness. The only way we'll know is if we study the Bible and follow Jesus wherever he goes. So, so for a Christian today, the only safe way 
is to know Jesus and follow Jesus 100% and follow what the Bible says 100%. And that will be our testing point. That will be our standard. You know, if we're going to find a church that's teaching the truth right, first we have to find it in the Bible. And then, you know, check everything by the Bible. That's what we should do. Check everything by the Bible. There's too much confusion in this world for us not to go back to the Bible and check it by the Bible. We must do that. So we've covered a lot of important ground, and I want to look at some of the points on the little horn that we looked at last time. So Daniel chapter 7 describes this little horn. We learned about the powers of of ancient Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. We learned about the divisions of the Roman Empire, what came up in the place of the Roman Empire. There's 10 horns mentioned there in Daniel chapter 7, and 10 toes in Daniel chapter 2, representing the divisions of Rome. When Rome broke apart, the European nations came up in the place of Rome. So England, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, you know, all Italy, like all these powers came up in the place of the Roman Empire. And these were the most influential powers throughout the last 2,000 years in the world until America came on the scene. The European powers were the most powerful ones. So we've learned about that. Those ten horns that come up in the place of Rome, they take the political power of Rome. And even during the Middle Ages, they still had elements of Rome within their, within their system. They tried to join themselves together under some banner and name of Rome. It was still mixed in there, the iron and the clay, like we see in Daniel chapter 2, that's mixed in there. So the Bible tells us about a little horn who's, who's smaller. There's the ten horns, but then there's this little horn. And he comes up and he's more boastful than his fellows, the Bible says in Daniel 7. He's more boastful than his fellows and he wants to control people. Verse 20 says he's more stout than his fellows. His look was more stout than his fellows. Verse 21 says about him that I beheld the same horn and he made war with the saints and prevailed against them. So fighting against the believers in the Bible, the believers of the Bible, fighting against them, prevailing against them even. Verse 22 of Daniel 7, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So we have little horn, judgment scene, and then we have the saints, the believers, possessing the kingdom. Now in verse 24, it describes those ten horns and the little horn coming up. He subdues three kings, takes them down when he comes up to power. That's an important point. We're going to look at that here tonight. In some more detail. Now the same sequence is mentioned in Daniel 7 here but verse 8 where it mentions the the horns and behold there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots and behold in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay a mouth speaking great things. And the little horn has eyes like the eyes of a, a man. Now, is that significant? If the Bible included it here in prophecy, must it be significant? Yes. It must be significant. That he has eyes like the eyes of a man. And in the Old Testament, the biblical prophets were called seers. Because the Lord gave them visions. 
They saw visions from the Lord. The Lord was guiding the prophets, the true prophets, according to his wisdom, his eyesight. The Lord says, I will guide you with mine eyes, right? God sees where we need to go. He knows where we need to go. He will lead us where we need to go. He will show us the way. He will show us the vision. But this power has eyes like a man. He looks at it from a human perspective. He's humanistic. He wants to go his own way, not the Lord's way. So this is a, a false kind of you know, prophetic movement in a way. Right? We looked at false prophets already. We looked at Jezebel calling herself a prophetess. We've looked at some of those things. So we see that this stuff is, you know, it's real. And so here you have this power that's led by human wisdom. There must be some system of men or man who's guiding the system by their own wisdom and not by God's wisdom, not by a thus saith the Lord, not by the scriptures, not by the teachings of God's word. And this power is very boastful. Notice verse 25. He shall speak great words against who? God. Yes, the Most High. Against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. No, this power will think to change times and laws. We've mentioned this before. Are those human laws or divine laws? How many countries in the history of the world have made and changed laws. How many countries? All of them. All of them, 100%. Would it be significant to say that he thinks to change times and laws if he's talking about the laws of men? Why not say that about the other countries too? And then again, why say it at all? Why say it at all? If it, wasn't, if it wasn't something very significant, you wouldn't say it. So, he thinks to change times and laws. And he's attacking God, speaking great words against the, the Most High, and against the saints of the Most High, the believers who really want to follow what God says. So, there is no doubt about it that this power is trying to undermine the law of God. Trying to undermine the commandments of God following human wisdom, human reasoning, and not God's holy word. Not a thus saith the Lord, which Jesus has already described in Mark 7 as vain worship. It's vain worship because you put the commandments of men above the commandments of God. The Bible tells us that that is, that is very dangerous, and it's even satanic because it's what the devil tried to do, to exalt man and exalt self above God. That's very, very demonic and dangerous. So this power is very corrupt, very dangerous, and we need to know exactly who this is. Now, we also find in verse 25 that they shall be given into his hand, that is the saints, given into his hand until a time, times, and dividing of a time. This is three and a half prophetic years. It divides up also as 42 months in those years, and it divides up also as 1260 days. That phrase is mentioned one of those three ways, a total of seven times in Daniel and Revelation between the two of them. A total of seven times it's mentioned. Probably not a coincidence, seven, <laughs> Bible number. So uh, seven times between Daniel and Revelation, that, that phrase is mentioned. It's mentioned in three different ways, but it refers to the exact same time period. 
And when you want to break it down, see a lot of scholars today have tried to take this time period and stick it down at the end of time and say, well, it's just a literal three and a half years. But when you look at nations, nations don't just rule for like three and a half years. You know, that's not a very long time. Okay. Um, nations last for a longer time. And if you look at the contemporaries that this power was existing with, the European nations that rose up out of Rome, this one also rises up from the head of Rome. Okay, they lasted a long time. In fact, they're still here today. In fact, they're going to be here right at the end of time. They make war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Revelation tells us that, that the Lamb will overcome them. So this power must be existing for quite a bit longer than just three and a half literal years. And when you look at the Bible, there is a biblical principle. It's found in Numbers 14.34. It's found in Ezekiel 4.6. Um, if somebody wants to look up Ezekiel 4.6, you can read that to us. Um, there's a couple of verses there actually that reference it, but we just need to look at at least one of them. So, uh, Ezekiel 4.6. Yes. And 7. Just, yeah, just 4.6. when six. you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Okay, thank you. So God says, I have laid on you a day for each year. The prophet Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel, was told to lie on his side for a specific number of days and then turn over and lay on the other side for a specific number of days. And those days that he was lying on his side were to actually represent the number of years that the houses of Israel and Judah were living in iniquity or sin. So each of those days, he says, I have given you each of the days for a year. The day is representing a year in prophecy. Now, this is a principle of Bible prophecy that has been understood by biblical scholars for a long time. Only in modern times, a lot of popular prophecy teachers are not utilizing it anymore. And there's political reasons for that. There are specific reasons for that. But if you look at all the Bible prophecy scholars, even into the 1800s, there was a commentary published by Adam Clark. He was a British Methodist. It was published in the year 1825. And it's a well done, well put together commentary. This commentary, Clark's commentary, includes the day for year principle in it. And a number of other commentaries do that as well. A lot of people have lost sight of this biblical teaching. And yet it is very, very important that we understand. Now, are we saying that there's going to be, you know, 1260 years now at the end of time? No. The Bible tells us that these powers, they continued, first of all, rose up from Rome, you know, Roman roots. And then there's a period in the Middle Ages where these powers were doing the activities described here. And then the Bible tells us in Revelation 13, 3, there's a deadly wound that takes place on this system. And then there's a revival of the powers in the last days where they, they, you know, they take worldly precedence again. So yes, there's a last day uh, situation that arises, but the period here refers to what happens specifically in the Middle Ages with these powers. Okay, so the little horn is obviously something that can last as long as those other European powers, which are still here today, like 1,500 years later, coming up from Rome with Roman roots. 
We have to understand clearly these prophecies. Now, let's take a look at Revelation 13 for a moment. Let's take a look at Revelation 13, because this is where we start to understand and unlock some of the prophecies of Revelation, specifically dealing with the three angels' messages in regard to the beast. You've heard of the infamous mark of the beast, which we're not going to be covering at all today. That will be uh, in a future lesson. But we're going to be looking at the foundations of these things, which is, first of all, understanding who the beast is. If you don't know who the beast is, you'll never understand the other parts of the prophecy either. So, in Revelation chapter 13, the Bible describes a beast that comes up out of the sea. He says, I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. This is Revelation 13.1. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. We have learned before from Revelation 17 verse 15 that waters represents peoples, nations, languages. So here we have these peoples, nations, and languages. Incidentally, in Daniel chapter 7, we have four beasts rising up out of the sea. We talked about that in our last lesson. So we have, and specifically, those uh, Mediterranean powers, those powers rising up in the Middle East and surrounding the Mediterranean, those political powers, those, that's known as the old world over there. That's known as the old world, which includes Europe and the Middle East. And that's where all of those beast powers rose up. So you move through Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and even the European nations, they all rose up in that location. So we know for a fact that when the Bible describes the sea, it's describing that area, that region, where these many peoples and many nations and many languages of old were, were at. And so you have a lot of uh, political power rising up over there in that territory. So in Revelation 13 later, we're going to look at a beast that rises from the earth. And that will be another story, you know, because it's a different location where it rises up. But this one, just like the beasts in Daniel 7, rises up from the sea. Verse uh, 1 continues. It says, having seven heads and ten horns. Ah, we saw that in Daniel 7 as well. And upon his horns, ten crowns, meaning kings, kingdoms. We saw that also in Daniel 7. As a matter of fact, the only two chapters in the Bible that have such a close relationship of all these symbols is Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. Only two chapters. That should narrow it down, shouldn't it? So we can know what it's talking about. It tells us there, upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Ah, the name of blasphemy. The Bible says the little horn is blasphemous in, in Daniel chapter 7. Verse 2 here says, Revelation 13 verse 2, and the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, the dragon specifically is described in Revelation 12:9 as being Satan. But it also describes Satan working through a great red dragon to destroy Jesus as a baby. And if you look at the history in the Bible, Satan destroyed tried to destroy Jesus as a baby by using the Roman government. He killed a lot of babies, but Jesus and his family escaped to Egypt because the angel told them to escape to Egypt. We're going to look at that chapter on another lesson. But essentially, when you talk about the dragon, and Revelation 12.9 says the dragon is Satan and he was working through Rome, you start to get the idea here that, wow, okay, all these powers were clearly represented here. Uh, Daniel 7 describes a, an ugly-looking beast with ten horns. 
And here it describes a dragon. You notice that it mentions all the beasts that were mentioned in Daniel 7. Part part of him is like a leopard, and part of him is like a bear, and like a lion, and has a mouth like a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and seat and great authority, so Satan inspired it. Verse 3, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So who is this beast? You notice that this beast is made up from pieces of all of these previous powers. Now, if you follow the prophecy, realizing that Revelation 13 connects directly with Daniel 7, and you realize that you have ancient Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then the European nations that came up in the place of Rome, then a little horn who comes up among them, Do you notice how he would be able to draw from the history of all those nations before him? When you have a conglomerate-looking beast, it's like fusion. You're pulling pieces together from these previous nations before you. You're building off of the history from before you. You're building off of their power, their authority, their ways. Even their false worship systems, you're incorporating it. You're mixing it all in. You're blending it all together. And you're not really following Christ faithfully. And in fact, in this case, the dragon, Satan, inspired this power to rise up. And this power goes against God and his people. Notice this in verse 4. They worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. That tells us they're worshiping ultimately Satan. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? The Bible tells us the little horn was a little bit unique a little bit unique from the other powers in Europe. And how is that? The Bible says that he's worshipped. Now that's pretty serious, isn't it? Because he's taking worship away from Christ, taking worship away from God, so the people bow to him instead of bowing to Christ. The people obey him instead of obeying Christ Jesus and his word. Following a man, a human system, instead of following God. That's very serious, isn't it? So the Bible tells us about that, that there, there's, there's religion and politics mixed together, blended together here. Verse 5 says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Forty and two months is the same time period as the 1260 days or as the time, times, and half a time. Because you have time, which is one, times, which is two. So you have a time plus times, that's three. One plus two is three. And then you have a half a time there in Daniel 7.25, which would be half of a year, so that's six months. Three and a half years, prophetic years. Gives you 42 prophetic months, gives you 1260 prophetic days, each day being equal to a year, total 1260 years. So the rule of this power is the same as the little horn. So we start to realize, ah, this beast is the same as the little horn in Daniel 7. It's the same. Notice there's more evidence on that point. It says in verse 6, he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. Did the little horn do that? Speak great words against the Most High. (laughs) Yes, Daniel 7.25. Okay, and it says that, He spoke great things and blasphemies, and power was given to him to continue 42 months. Verse 6, he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. 
verse 7, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Did this power make war with the saints? Did the little horn make war with the saints? Daniel 7, 21. Yep. He made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Daniel 7, 25 tells us more about that. Uh, fighting against the believers, the, the holy ones in the Lord. And it says to overcome them and power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This is not a small power. This is not an obscure power. This is a very big, well-known power who obviously has power in the world over many, many nations. It should be a pretty obvious kind of out there in your face power, right? I mean, if you're a world contender, then you're in the world spotlight, then people are going to see you and know who you are. You're not going to be a nobody hiding in a hole somewhere. You're a world player. And the whole world, people are turning and worshiping. The Bible says the world wandered after the beast. So what more can we learn about this power? The Bible says in verse 8 that all who dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that verse should cause us to sit up straight. It should cause us to wake up and say, wait a second, if we worship the beast then we will not be following Jesus Christ. We will not be in heaven. Our names will not be in the book of life if we choose to follow the beast. That's dangerous. And that's why the Bible's warning us because the Bible wants us to follow Jesus and not the beast. Follow God and not man. Obey the voice of God and not man. Obey God's word and not man's word. This is what the scripture is teaching us here. And so when you look at that now, it says that these people all over the world will worship this power. And the Bible says that the saints were just waiting for this power to go into captivity. Verse 9 says, If any man have an ear, let him hear. Verse 10, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now I want to outline for us who this power is. Because the Bible tells us very clearly he has Roman roots. He comes up in Europe. Okay, that narrows it down. That narrows it down. We have to have more points than that. He's world famous, but he comes up having Roman roots. He's a little kingdom, but he's also religious and political. And he has more controlling power over the other European nations. Was there any kingdom in Europe that came up having Roman roots who was a little kingdom, a little horn, and ruled among them and was more stout among the European powers than any other king or kingdom. Was there one of those persons and kingdoms in the Middle Ages? Yes or no? Yes. And this power came up there in Europe, ruling among them. In fact, we've mentioned before the, what was known as the Holy Roman Empire. Who was crowning the kings and queens of Europe during that time with the Holy Roman Empire? The popes of Rome, weren't they? They were crowning the kings and queens of Europe. Did you know that the Vatican is actually a state power and a religious power? Yes. Did they also persecute believers who wanted to follow the Bible and not Rome? They did. So, so the Bible is giving us a lot of points here, and we see that the points are all coming together, that he comes up in Europe, a little kingdom, a religious kingdom, takes worship and controls people, and even puts himself in the place of God, showing himself that he is God. Blasphemy. 
You know, Jesus was accused of blasphemy in the New Testament because Jesus forgave people's sins. But the question I have is, did Jesus have the right to forgive sins, yes or no? Jesus is God, so he had the right to forgive sins. Jesus definitely had the right to do that because he is God. But for a man to do that, that would be blasphemy. The Bible says also about the Antichrist that he puts himself up in the place of God, showing himself that he is God. And that's pretty dangerous. <laughs> so what are some statements about the, the papal system in Europe? Did they put themselves up in the place of God? Let me read you a statement from 1895. This is found on, this is found on Supplement 2, down near the bottom. Supplement 2 of your notes. Um, down near the bottom, point F of number 1, and it's point I out of point F. <laughs> and so in 1895, an article from the Catholic National said this, The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. Catholic National, July 1895. Here's another statement. He, the Pope, can pronounce sentences and judgments in contradiction to the rights of nations, to the law of God and man. He can free himself from the commands of the apostles, he being their superior, and from the rules of the Old Testament. The Pope has the power to change times, to abrogate, law, abrogate laws. Did the Bible say in Daniel 27:25 that he thinks to change times and laws? Yeah, it does say that, doesn't it? So they, they say here the Pope has the power to change times and to abrogate laws and to dispense with all things, even the precepts of Christ. Oh, mercy. Lord, have mercy on our souls. Here they say that they have the right to get rid of even the teachings of Christ himself. Does the Pope, that human being, have the right to dispense with the precepts and teachings of Christ? No, that's satanic. That is not of the Lord. And these are not just a few isolated statements. This is, a, this is a teaching going on for years and years and years, even today. Here it says in point three there, the Pope holdeth place on earth, not simply of a man, but of the true God, dissolves not by human, but rather by divine authority. I am in all and above all, so that God himself and I, the vicar of God, hath both one consistory, and I am able to do almost all that God can do. I then, being above all prelates, seem by this reason to be above all gods. Do they show themselves to be God? As if they're God, so boastful in claims? The references are here in your notes for all these statements. Here's another one. The Pope takes the place of Jesus Christ on earth, the judge of all, being judged by no one, God himself on earth. Imagine that, calling the Pope God himself on earth. That's quoted in the New York Catechism. Here's another statement from Pope Pius V. He said this, The Pope and God are the same, so he has all power in heaven and earth. Do you believe the Pope and God are the same? I don't think so. He says the Pope has all power in heaven and earth. No, he doesn't. Pope Leo XIII said this about the role of the Pope. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Now, if you want to know what they teach today, it's still the same. Catholic Church doesn't change their ways. <laughs> they boast about that. 
They say they're infallible. They say that everything that the popes have said in official teaching is infallible truth and you can't change it. The church claims infallibility, that they don't change. Do they still call the pope today the vicar of Christ? They call him the vicar. They say he is in place of Christ. The word vicarious means to do it in place of. And so they believe that the pope is the vicar of God on earth, that he is the vicar of Christ. He's in the place of God on earth. He's in the place of Christ on earth, that he is in fact God. Showing himself that he is God, exactly like scripture prophesied, boastful words against the most high, claiming to be God. Satanism at its core in the garb of a Christian. That's very serious, isn't it? Does the Bible say the devil will show himself like an angel of light? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. He'll show himself like an angel of light. Now, some people are wondering, what about that 1260 years? Let me explain that briefly. We'll have to draw up to a close here very shortly. The 1260 years, the Bible says that as this power comes up, he uproots three of the early European kingdoms. Three of them are plucked up by the roots. The little horn in Daniel 7, he plucks up three powers by the roots. Those were the Hirali, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. Those three powers are no longer represented today by modern nations of Europe because they were uprooted early on. In the year 538, the last of those powers, the last of those three kind of blocking the rise of the papacy to power, was plucked up in 538. Okay, So the papacy comes up to the place where they have power now because they've taken out these opposers. So now they're, now they're at the place where, okay, we begin our reign of power through the Middle Ages because now all the European nations are supporting us. Those three early powers were opposing them. They were not Catholic powers. And you look at the history books, this is all there in the history books. Okay, it's incredible. You read the history book, you're like, wow, I'm reading Bible prophecy fulfilled. <laughs> and so uh, these powers were plucked up by the roots. So the, the Ostrogoths were destroyed in 538. And that led, that started the beginning. Now there were some, there's more technicalities there if you want to, you know, study out the history. But essentially that's the point. 538, where they begin the 1260 year reign. So 1260 years from 538 will bring you to the year 1798. 1798. Well, what happened in 1798? You would expect that as this power gains political power and rules for 1260 years with great power, but they receive a deadly wound at the end of that time period, you would expect them to lose their political power, right? Because a horn is a kingdom, not just a church or religion or someone to worship. It's a political power. So in 1798, Napoleon, yes, the famous Napoleon of France, with his general Berthier, he sent Berthier into the Vatican and took the Pope prisoner and removed the state power that they had. The Pope was taken in, into captivity through military might that was turned against the church when before France had been supporting the church, but now they were against the church. And so they took the Pope prisoner back to France. He died in captivity there. Did, did Revelation mention the, this power, this beast going into captivity and getting killed with a sword, the sword of the state? Yes, the military power, yes. Okay, so they you know, lost that power in 1798. Now, later, they, they had some, you know, back and forth, but their, their unchallenged reign had come to an end. And then there was a little bit of back and forth in history, but they didn't really have, they didn't have the place anymore. They didn't have the popularity anymore. They didn't have the power anymore. 
you know, that was taken away. But something important happened in the year 1929. This was around the time of Hitler, around the time of Mussolini, the Italian leader. And Mussolini, with his uh, political leaders, decided to give back to the Church of Rome the state, the papal states. Okay, so what they did was they decided we're going to give you this territory of the Vatican to be your own country. You know, today the Vatican is the smallest country in the world. Yes. It is the smallest country in the world. And so they have, they have the Vatican, they have their own currency, they have their own, you know, own laws. Everything is unique there in Vatican. They are a religious power and a state power today since 1929. And it's very interesting that all the papers of the time said, they did this healing the wound of many years, fixing the wound of many years. What interesting language to use when it very specifically applies to the prophecy in Revelation 13 and verse 3, where it says that I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. Let's ask the question, is the world wondering after this power today? Is the Vatican in prominence today? Are they in popularity today? Have we seen the world leaders rallying around the papacy and the Church of Rome and looking to them for leadership, for moral leadership in the world and for political help as well? Are we seeing that today? The world leaders are coming together. You may have watched some of the, uh, the climate crisis, you know, climate agenda of the world leaders. And we see them coming together and rallying around the papacy and looking for the leadership of the papacy. Previously, when we had Obama as president in the United States, he hailed the Pope's moral example and authority, and he helped to heal a, heal a difference between Cuba and America. I'm not sure how well he healed it, but supposedly he did something really great. <laughs> and so he was praised for that. And they're talking about him as this great global leader. And he is a global leader. But is he leading people to God or leading people to himself? That is the big question. Are they going to worship Christ and keep Christ's commandments? Or are they going to worship the Pope and keep his human commandments? His human commandments. You know, recently the Pope even came out and denied that God is even our creator. You know, he said, well, essentially what he said was, evolution is how we got here. You know, the Bible is just speaking in metaphors and you can't really believe everything the Bible says. And, you know, he was hailing the, the, the so-called sciences of the world today. You know, evolution, which is against the Creator, an attack against the Creator God. The three angels' messages are all about worship the Creator, don't worship the beast, don't worship the man. So you have a system with a man, a human at the head of it. This is the papacy. It's the Church of Rome, and all of the points of prophecy that we have looked at here perfectly fit. There is no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, something else we need to know. He thinks to change times and laws. One of the commandments that the Roman Church removed was the commandment about worshiping idols. Why do they have so many statues in Rome and throughout the world in their churches, and even in Catholic homes where people come up? You know, and God bless the Catholic people, okay? A lot of people don't even know this. They don't even realize it. Okay, so this is talking about the system, and there's people in, this, in the church who love God, right? There's yeah. people who love God in the Roman yeah. church. Um, so let's be clear about that. Um, but they don't realize this, that it's, that it's all wrong. And God is calling His people to light. The people who love God who are within the church of Rome, God is calling them to realize the light of Jesus Christ today. 
and to come away from that corruption, to come away from that system. God is calling His people away from corruption. And so, um, you know, people have in their homes, because they've been taught to do this, they have statues and they worship those statues and they kiss the feet. The feet of these statues in Rome are practically worn off because people go and reverence them, worship them, kiss them. You know, so that's why they got rid of that commandment about bowing to, to idols. They said, oh, you can bow to idols. That's what, that's what they did. <clears throat> but there's another commandment that a lot of people don't realize today that they tampered with. And that is the day of worship. Remember, they said we can change the, the laws or the times. Daniel 7.25 says laws and times. There's only one commandment that deals with law and a time in the, whole of, in the whole of the Ten Commandments. And guess what it is? It's the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And on that day, you're not supposed to work. You're supposed to worship God on the Sabbath day. That's what it says. And we've learned about the Sabbath day in this series. So I want to show you from the catechism that they even made that change and they claim to make that change. This comes from the Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine by Peter Gearman. It says, question, which is the third commandment? Now they call it the third commandment, even though it's the fourth commandment because they removed the second commandment and they split the last commandment about coveting into two commandments to try to make up a list of ten. And so it tells us here, the third commandment is, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. Well, that's actually that's the fourth commandment. But anyway, it says, which is the Sabbath day? Saturday is the Sabbath day. See, they know which day it is. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Uh, why did the Catholic Church substitute Sunday for Saturday? The church substituted Sunday for Saturday because Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday. Have you heard that before? It comes straight out of the Catholic Catechism, and Christians all around the world will repeat that to you as a reason for keeping Sunday. It's a Catholic reason. It's not a biblical reason. And they say the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles on a Sunday. Question, by what authority did the church substitute Sunday for Saturday? Answer, the church substituted Sunday for Saturday by the plentitude of that power which Jesus Christ bestowed upon her. Do you believe the Catholic Church has that power from Jesus to live in opposition to God, to put themselves in the place of God, to change the commandments of God? I don't see any authority from the Bible that we can put ourselves as a human being or a human organization above God. It's just not there. And so they even say here from Catholic Press, this is in your notes, you can look at your supplement there later. But the Sunday is a Catholic institution and can be defended only on Catholic principles. In other words, you can't find a thus saith the Lord for it. You can't find a, the Bible and the Bible only from that. No, that defeats the very Protestant principle of the Bible and the Bible alone for our faith. It defeats it because they say our tradition goes above the Bible. This was the challenge of the Protestants, the Bible alone. The Catholic Church responded to the Protestants and said, no, we're going to go by tradition. Read it in history. The Council of Trent, the Church of Rome decided we will not follow the Bible only. We will follow tradition and the Bible. If there's any difference, we put our tradition above the Bible. We just read tonight in Matthew, no, it was Mark 7, that Jesus said, if you follow traditions of men above the word of God and the commands of God, you are worshiping God in vain. 
So the question is, who do we follow, Jesus Christ or Antichrist? God or the dragon? Now, I'll let you read it in your own notes uh, later, but Supplement 3 tells you all of the Protestant reformers knew exactly what we're talking about here in this lesson. Martin Luther said, We are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. Personally, I declare that I owe the Pope no other obedience than that to Antichrist. Taken from Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 2, page 121. There's a whole bunch of people here. John Calvin, John Knox, John Wesley, Cotton Mather, Thomas Cramer, Roger Williams, who was the first Baptist pastor in America back in the, um, the 1600s. And so these guys all knew who this was, the pretended vicar of Christ on earth. So the question I have for you today is, do you want to follow Jesus Christ or Antichrist? Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm glad you gave us this list of all these different denominations back in the 15, 16, 1700s that mm-hmm. knew who that great man of sin is. Praise the Lord. Yes. Because I tell people this. I When I talk to people, and I... That should be helpful. You'll have a paper yes. you can copy and share it with people from your notes. Yes. Um, you know, so, so the question is, Jesus Christ or Antichrist? The question is, God's commandments or man's commandments? And we have to come back to the question, would you like to follow Jesus and His commandments because you love Him? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. This would include the seventh-day Sabbath, wouldn't it? That we, we need to get back to the Bible and the Bible only. We need to get back to the Sabbath, which the Lord has given us, which Jesus kept, which the apostles kept, and not this corruption of the Roman fold, which the Bible says clearly is the Antichrist. Why would we want to follow the tradition of Antichrist in place of the commandment of God? We have to come back. The believers of the world today who genuinely want to follow Christ, God is calling them, all of us, to come back to the Bible Come back to the Bible and begin keeping the Sabbath because it is God's day. Jesus says that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for man, not just for the Jews. That's Mark 2, 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for God's people. He is calling us to worship Him and keep His day holy along with the rest of the commandments that the Lord has given. Along with the rest of the commandments. So that is the call tonight. May God put it on all of our hearts, those who are listening to the audio. May God put it on everyone's hearts to really surrender to Him in this area and all areas. 100%, let's follow Jesus. Amen? 100%, let's follow Jesus. Shall we pray together as we close up our lesson? Our Father in heaven, tonight we come before You. We ask, Lord, for Your mercies in our lives. We ask for Your forgiveness for our own failings and falling short of Your will and Your commandments, Lord. Please forgive us for our sins. And Lord, please help us to truly follow Jesus, to genuinely follow the Savior, to walk with Jesus and follow Him wherever He leads. Lord, we don't want to follow any corrupted systems, any defiling women, but we want to follow the truth of Your Word, Your commandments, Your will, not the will of man, not the will of Satan, Lord. So please guide us that we would not be deceived by Satan coming like an angel of light, coming with a cloak and a garment, pretending to be of Christ when he is not of Christ, calling himself Christian and Christ when he is not, putting himself in the place of Christ. Lord, what kind of wickedness 
is this. Lord, let us not be cut off guard by the deceptions and the confusion of the world, the confusion of Babylon, but let us come to you in spirit and in truth, Lord. May we worship you following what following Jesus according to what Jesus has taught. Lord, may we follow you truly in every respect. And this is my prayer and our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.